let the rainmaking begin. gentlemen welcome to its rainmaking time this is kim greenhouse we are live in the united kingdom we have a team of champions all over the world today in arizona in colorado in california in the united kingdom in brazil we have champions of the health and medical field people who have been for many, many, many years helping people at the crossroads of difficulty between the established medical profession and the alternative medical profession. We shouldn't really have to say alternative medical profession, but we do because the mainstream medical profession, as much as it started out as a good thing, has turned into something that has kept a critical mass of patients and people around the world from being well. I never thought the day that I would be alive to say that medicine has turned into a political sphere, but it has. When my doctor, Dr. James Privatera, was put in jail for curing his patients of cancer, that's politics. When Dr. Jonathan Wright of Washington is raided by the FDA and men with guns come to his office and raid his office and he has the threat of continual lawsuits and losing his medical license, that's politics. The simple truth is that it's not legal to use the word cure. For many, not even legal to use the word treatment. The people that have come to this show today who are guests are people that have been healing people, helping people not have to live on pharmaceutical drugs, not have to have unnecessary procedures. People who have been out there at the front line delivering critical information, new knowledge, advanced information, and stewarding it in a way like few do. With us today, Dr. Mark Circus, naturopath, who is here today from Brazil. Dr. Stuart Nunnally, known as the Yoda of the dental industry, who does biological dentistry, and he receives patients from all over the world. He is somebody who has followed in the footsteps of Dr. Hal Huggins and Dr. Weston Price, we have Dr. Gary Gordon, who's an alternative doctor who has been healing people, getting people off of warfarin and Coumadin who have blood clots. He has been treating the untreatable. We have Dr. Stephen Hickey, whose expertise is in the area of ascorbates, L-ascorbate, and you're going to hear about them on vitamin C. His work has been going on for 40 years, and the devil really is in the details. We need to find out about it. Dr. Thomas Levy, who's a cardiologist, practicing, teaching people how cardiology and dentistry connect with each other, showing people how vitamin C can cure, not only cure, he actually uses the word cure, critical diseases. And the reality is that every single day, these professionals open their mouths, they risk losing their medical license, losing their practice, losing their income. And you have to know that when you hear them, they are stewarding the work like few are. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Mark Circus, Dr. Gary Gordon, Dr. Thomas Levy, uh, Dr. Stephen Hickey, God, and Stuart Nunnally. 
to its rainmaking time. Guy Kramer, the founder of Hyperstealth, which is a company that builds fractal technology that makes soldiers and their equipment disappear in the field. We did an interview uh, about a year and a half ago, and I asked him this question. Let's say we're playing tennis, and I serve you the ball, and you return it, and I go to return it, and you disappear. Are we playing tennis? And his answer was... You're playing at a disadvantage, and I'm playing at a massive advantage. Well, for sure. And that's the whole goal of the quantum stealth material, is to provide the good guys that massive advantage that they need. But it didn't really answer my question. What, you know, are we playing tennis? And the question is, what game are we playing in alternative health and medicine? What is the game? I'd like to know from Gary Gordon, in the context of taking people off warfarin, what game are we in? What's the game? The game is acknowledging that blood clots are the major etiology of things like the stroke, the heart attack, and the pulmonary embolism, and just to stop at the top of the page, 5% of Americans are walking around with Leiden 5, a hypercoagulable genetically transmitted disease, and people aren't checked for it. So you have just that as the beginning, but then you have the infections like cytomegalic virus, according to Harvard, properly tested in over 90% of people is active. And we've all known that inflammation, whether it's due to toxins or microbial, viral, protozoan, fungal, is always inducing hypercoagulability. So across the board, I've been very lucky because we found that EDTA, which I spent my lifetime reading all 7,000 published papers that, as of 10 years ago, and they showed that EDTA was doing amazing things because you put a little EDTA in the bottom of a tube of blood and then blood and it doesn't clot. So then I got involved in what we could do to find in nature a heparin-like compound, which I found in the ocean, in basically seaweed. We were able to find specifically mucopolysaccharide that actually fools the body into thinking it's heparin. And amazingly, in 1960, published in Nature, was the article that EDTA makes heparin work by mouth. So when I found a natural heparin substitute in the ocean, we had an answer that safely was able to take people off Coumadin. And for actually, when I put EDTA into any human being, the EDTA has a wonderful thing that it leaves the body, because remember, it's four molecules, basically, of vinegar, tetraacetic acid. And when it leaves the body, it loves to take something out with it called lead. And according to Harvard well-published studies, every child born today is born between one and 2,000 times higher levels of lead, specifically if we measure it in the bone. The bone takes in adults 15 years to remodel. So if you treat somebody with chelation, you need to tell them that Dr. Gordon advocates the oral because it gets tired of having an IV every week for 15 years. But I've been extremely lucky. In over 10 years, I have had never a single fatal heart attack or fatal stroke in patients because we were lucky enough to put these pieces together as a result of reading every article on EDTA. So I now advocate giving people on safe alternatives 
the Plavix, which I don't use, or any of the other anticoagulant drugs, because all of them have side effects. And knock on wood, I have never had a patient die that I've heard of specifically have been contacted from heart attack, pulmonary embolism, or stroke in over 10 years as a result of the lucky combination of simple okay. things like EDT Dr. that Gordon. I actually am advocating. Dr. Gordon. Dr. Gordon. Morally, okay. yes. Okay. We're going to come back to you. I want to talk to Mark Circus. Mark Circus, what do you advocate on your end of the world when you're looking at people that are on Coumadin and Warfarin? Well, I, I have a general philosophy of medicine, which is not to poison people, not to take poisons. And the whole pharmaceutical paradigm is poisonous. So whatever drug a person is on, I'm like a wind, hoping and helping move people away from pharmaceutical drugs and onto things that are not poisonous, that help the body. Let's stay away from the word cure. I mean, you know, they like to be fanatics about the words and what you can do and not do. But, you know, let people's body handle the stresses that including these poisons that are given by doctors, and get them off of these things. But the thing is, I want to take a live example. I have a dear friend of mine who was from Britain who was given synthetic hormones by her doctor, had three blood clots, one in the lung and two in the legs, was put on warfarin for 26 years and was told you have to be on lifelong warfarin, you're going to die if you don't take it. And I've been telling her, you got to get off it and you got to use natural remedies to do it. But the fear is great. You have to have your INR checked every couple of weeks, et cetera, and stay within a certain level. But there's a great deal of fear that is communicated from the doctors to the patients. So that's an example. But now there's cardiology issues coming up. Now she's suffering from some kind of angina symptoms. Dr. Stewart Nunley, I know that you're a dentist and you're out of Marble Falls, Texas. This is a different issue for you, but I'd like you to talk about the connection between Weston Price, the mouth, dental decay, and cardiology, if you would, for just a moment. Well, the greatest relationship there between the oral environment and heart disease is from the bacteria that reside around the teeth and cause periodontal disease. You know, there's hardly a disease today that we don't associate with uh, inflammation. And it just so happens that the bacteria that occupy that space around the tooth and the little crevice between the tooth and the gum are famous for their inflammatory uh, impact on our systemic health. Um, we think of that most often in terms of coronary vessels and the cerebral vessels. So if you have periodontal disease, um, you're much more prone to heart attack or to uh, cerebral issues like stroke. So what Dr. Gordon mentioned early on uh, about inflammation and hypercoagulability being an issue, it's a huge issue uh, as it relates to dentistry because so much of what happens in the mouth can lead to those issues of inflammation and uh, elevated C-reactive protein is a marker for inflammation, subsequently to heart and uh, stroke issues. Why do you think it's taken so long for the public to figure out that root canals carry such a toxic load? In other words, because mainstream dentistry is still doing them, 
the connection that Weston Price made so many years ago, almost 100 years ago, is not enforced today. And it's certainly not mainstream knowledge. So if there's no connection, how do we make the connection, Dr. Nunley? Well, um, to go to your question, why why have we been so slow to embrace what Weston Price demonstrated 100 years ago uh, is the fact that many people, um, many people, Kim, still seem to tolerate all toxins. I mean, it's just it's amazing. These bodies are so amazing that, that, that folks do tolerate a lot of toxicities, and some of them tolerate root canal toxicity as well. The flip side of that is there is certainly a segment of the population that does not tolerate them at all. And um, so when you have a group of the population that seems to do well when you have a root canal or you're unable to associate with some uh, the demise of one systemic health, uh, the profession slow to embrace the fact that we should um, do some other treatment other than root canal. Dr. Thomas Levy, thank you so much for being here. What is your experience? You worked with Hal Huggins, didn't you? Yes, yes. What was your experience of his contributions to the world? Oh, my goodness. I would say Hal was the primary person behind the largely eliminated mercury amalgam filling. I say largely only because there's still a lot being done, but some years back, we finally got to the point where more than 50% of the dentists uh, said they were no longer putting in amalgams. So that was sort of a uh, watershed moment for the uh, anti-mercury movement in dentistry. However, I would say perhaps Hal's greater, greater contribution was what he did in disseminating the work of Dr. Weston Price. I, I just caught a few words of what Dr. Dunnelly was saying about the the root canal treated tooth. Hal worked with Dr. Boyd Haley, and in combination with Dr. Haley, the root canal treated teeth that Hal had extracted at his clinic, and a host of dentists around the country that funneled extracted root canals into Dr. Boyd Haley at the University of Kentucky. When they reached the 5,000 mark, they still had not identified a single root canal treated tooth that did not have incredibly potent toxins uh, along the lines of the toxicity of botulism or even worse. When titrated against five different critical enzymes uh, that are involved in energy production and energy release in the human body. So Hal, in many ways, was able to corroborate with a greater degree of sophistication due to the times and due to the technology with Dr. Boyd Haley of the initial stunning work that Dr. Weston Price did in pushing forward the still largely rejected concept of focal infection, which is really kind of silly, but that's where the uh, state of uh, medicine and dentistry still remains today. Most recently, and of course, Dr. Huggins basically put me on my trail, if you will, and I have done my best to continue his work insofar as uh, trying to uh, delineate the mechanisms of vitamin C because I was first impressed with everything that Dr. Huggins did with regard to vitamin C, and he introduced me to that. The toxicity of calcium, which I wrote a book on, but Dr. Huggins got me started on that too. 
when he pointed out how high my calcium level was in my hair 20 years ago, um, told me what I needed to do and said it would a couple, take a couple years to get it normalized, and that's exactly what happened. And I feel very, very compelled, if you will, to try to give as much scientific foundation to the work that Dr. Huggins did and he started as, as, we, as we gain more sophisticated testing technology. You know, the public does not know he lost his license to practice dentistry for what he did. And what he did was take a stand. That's profound. <laughs> One of the most amazing things about Dr. Huggins to me was when I first started working with him as a consultant at his clinic back in 1994 or 5, I saw that he had a lawyer on retainer. And a lawyer on retainer that he was paying probably upwards of ten to $15,000 a month. And I said, my goodness, what, what a... What an incredibly awful situation to be in that you require expert legal assistance that often. But that's exactly what what Hal required, because he was in the crosshairs, number one. And number two, if you ever had the chance to know Dr. Huggins, you knew he was never going to back down. He was going to stand up for what's right come hell or high water. Can you stand by for just a moment, uh, Dr. Levy? I want to go back to Dr. Nunley, who's now back on the line. Dr. Nunley, come in. I'm back. Come on, come on down, Dr. Nunley. Gee, I just wanted to take this extra minute to uh, just honor the work of Dr. Hal Huggins, also the work of Dr. Weston Price. And I wondered if you wanted to share an anecdote or a story, uh, Dr. Nunley, about either Dr. Huggins or Weston Price's work. Well, Weston Price, in my opinion, is the hero of holistic thought and dentistry. And, of course, uh, Hal Huggins just took that to an incredibly bold level. And I thank God for both of them. And... The wonderful thing about it is is both men were incredibly tenacious and avid uh, researchers and just wouldn't settle for anything less than working always toward the truth. And so I personally uh, owe an incredible debt to Hal Huggins for not only for taking care of me at one point in my life when I got sick, but for being such an incredible mentor and for investing time not only in me, but so many dentists uh, and physicians around the world. So to both, I'll be eternally grateful. Gentlemen, I would like to take 30 seconds, uh, just have a 30 seconds of silence, um, just to honor the passing of Dr. Hal Huggins. Stand by. Thank you very much to Dr. Hal Huggins for his timeless contributions to humanity. I want to open up the line to Dr. Stephen Hickey. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. You have written about ascorbates, 
Talk a little bit about them. What's the distinction between an asorbate and vitamin C? When we hear the word vitamin C, we don't know anything about that other word and that molecule. What is it? Why do we need to know about it? And what do we need to know about it? Well, vitamin C is um, chemically ascorbic acid, and that's a, a, a small molecule, uh, weak acid, and it's a powerful uh, dietary antioxidant. Ascorbic acid, um, as the name suggests, prevents and um, cures scurvy, which is a dietary deficiency disease, which is fortunately acute scurvy is now um, very rare. The main issue with vitamin C is that uh, the authorities, um, for example, the NIH, the Institute of Medicine in the United States, decided some time ago that we needed only a very small amount of uh, vitamin C or ascorbic acid each day to prevent scurvy. What they didn't take account of was it's very difficult to monitor chronic disease. Uh, well, the question is, ascorbate, you wrote the book, Ascorbate, the Science of Vitamin C. You wrote about cancer nutrition and survival, cancer breakthrough. But specifically, who knows what to order? In other words, ascorbate is vitamin C. People think vitamin C just comes from fruits. What is it? Is it a synthetic substance? Well, effectively, synthetic and natural vitamin C should be identical. Ascorbic acid is more powerful in, when taken in large doses if it's taken as ascorbic acid rather than one of the salt forms, for example, sodium ascorbate or calcium ascorbate. Um, and the reason for that is each vitamin C molecule effectively supplies two antioxidant electrons. Whereas if you take a salt form, um, that will lower the available antioxidant, number of antioxidant electrons to approximately one per molecule. So sodium ascorbate taken orally is about half as effective as good old cheap ascorbic acid. Is ascorbic acid the same as L-ascorbate? Yes. Okay. It's, it can be very confusing for consumers to know what to do. I also want to share with all of you, um, and then we're going to open up a, a, another line, that in the United Kingdom, there's Professor Brian Williams who has created a new way to take blood pressure. It's a measurement device that is revolutionizing the way patients' blood pressure is measured since most of it is taken through the arm. And when you talk about a new invention like that, where you can actually get a more accurate diagnostic take on what's happening with someone's blood pressure, but you have the entire infrastructure of medicine taking our blood pressure through the arm, imagine this doesn't even take out industries, but it certainly is going to take out certain players in the industry if this is a more effective way to get a blood pressure reading. And so when you talk about getting patients well, when you talk about, for example, Dr. Nunnally not doing root canals but removing the whole tooth like he did with me. I lost my front tooth. It was taken out. No root canal was done, and it was replaced, much to my shock. And my friend who's here, my dear friend, 
in the United Kingdom, went in by ambulance, had angina-like symptoms, was taken in to in the United Kingdom Hospital in Yeovil. They did a electrocardiogram, and then they did an echogram, and echogram came out fine. Then they did a stress echogram, inconclusive. They did a treadmill test. She could only do three of 12 minutes. Four doctors surrounded her and said, with inconclusive testing, look, we're going to put you on statins. We're going to put you on aspirin and beta blockers. She could not manage, as she's laying on the table, to explain to them, if they have an inconclusive test, why she's being given this. And I would like to ask Dr. Gary Gordon what you would do, what you would tell her after being told by medical priests sitting around her what she needs to do. Well, my answer is very simple. I recognize that it's safe to take lead out of everybody since we're born with 1,000 times minimum above what it was 700 years ago. I put everybody on the oral EDTA chelation-based therapy, and I have really emphasized the natural calcium channel blocker called magnesium, and as the former director of the largest mineral testing lab in the world with offices in Asia and Europe called Mineral Lab, which I sold to doctor's data, I developed the Exotest, which is actually like a pap smear at the bottom of your tongue, and it shows low, insufficient magnesium in 99.9% of people because, as we have fortunately Tom Levy teaching people, be careful about calcium, he's going a little further than I have, but my position is very simple. I have found from Australia a topical magnesium that works as good as IV, and if I take out a tube which costs $15, and I have her rub that out of any part of her body, within an hour or two, the premature beats go away, things totally normalize, and by keeping her on the oculation, she joins my group that never has had a fatal heart attack or fatal stroke or pulmonary embolism in over 10 years, so it's pretty easy. I don't need a lot more tests. I don't need a lot more, because none of my patients are ever sent to cabbage, and none of my patients ever get to the uh, intervention with angiograms, and none of them get the percutaneous stents, and the latest study right in New, in the New England Journal of Medicine shows that there is no advantage of cutting people's chest open. There is, uh, they're much safer with stents, but I don't use stents on anybody since I have really documented that oral chelation, which can be continued daily for life, is a great way to, after you start with IV chelation, which I love, IV chelation gets everybody, in my case, I had total disabling angina at age 28. I had to close my medical practice. I couldn't walk 25 feet. And after the eighth IV chelation, I could walk up the side of a steep canyon wall and wear out a two-year-old Irish setter going to the top of the hill with no angina. So to me, I have really been the advocate of chelation. I've lectured everywhere. We did get a total of $31 million for the trial to assess chelation therapy. It's been published in JAMA, and the results are so profound that the NIH in this country is seriously considering another 
study of another 30 or $40 million because in addition to stopping heart disease, it dramatically reduced death in diabetics, 51%. So I'm in favor of chelating this lady and having her on some topical magnesium, and I don't have any use for their beta blockers, and I would never give anybody the statin, and I tried it. The aspirin, I'm not as against as I am the other things, but since the oral chelation with the addition of a mucopolysaccharide, which is a technical name for what heparin is, that is a sulfated multi-sugar called polysaccharide. So we are very lucky. We have answers. Of course, the, uh, the NIH in your country would not be paying for it. Uh, Dr. Thomas Levy, would you like to respond to this? Well, I certainly have no issue at all with just about everything Dr. Gordon had to say, and there's absolutely no question that even though diseases like heart disease are multifactorial, one of the consistent things that will always exacerbate the progression of heart disease and even the beginning of heart disease are toxins and toxins that get laid out not only in the plaque but throughout the rest of the body and any measures that clearly reduce lead burden and other toxic heavy metal burden are absolutely indicated to, do, to whatever degree the patient can afford and has the time to, uh, to undergo that type of therapy. I would say this, especially with regard to uh, heart attack and myocardial infarction, the information that has just come out in the last three or four years, and of all places, the dental literature is absolutely stunning, insofar as in the Journal of the American Dental Association, this was in 2006, they showed, and I don't know why they did this study, because to me it's very counter to the dental industry at large, but they showed that if you have one or more root canals in your mouth, you have a greater chance of heart attack, period. And this might seem a little bit stunning, but then they also came out, and this was done in 2013, they showed that when you have a heart attack and the blood clot can be suctioned out of the artery, that blood clot has a huge concentration of the DNA of the typical pathogens that are present in root canal-treated teeth and advanced gum disease. Now, to me, this is significant because it finally gets us away from this association with toxicity and infection to cause and effect. I don't know how anybody can look at evidence like that and not come to the conclusion that the pathogens and the toxins inside the mouth are the direct cause, not an association, but the direct cause of the heart attack. You certainly are going to clot off a coronary artery with a sterile clot, and then after the fact, you're going to suddenly magically concentrate dental pathogens inside that clot. So the point being is everything Dr. Gordon said is true. But I think it's very, very important now with the evidence that we have that all internists, all cardiologists, all family practitioners realize that the inflammation that they all now agree that is present in the coronary artery and initiating coronary artery disease is initiated greater than 90% of the time by dental pathogens and dental toxins. The other 5 to 10% of the time, it's going to be a focal infection somewhere else. But this is important because we have lots of young men, breadwinners, incapacitated by heart attacks, and this evidence needs to be out there. And if anybody wants to get a root canal and have a dentist give them a root canal, they need to have a fully informed consent, just like having a procedure anywhere else in the body.
You know, Barbara Streisand needs to hear this show because she has put a lot of money behind a foundation when she found out that a lot of women are getting a lot of heart attacks, not a huge amount. And I think she set up a foundation or is funding this. But this information needs to get to people of influence who can move it through hundreds and millions of people. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you would like to be the proud sponsor of this segment of It's Rainmaking Time, contact us in the United States at 1-626-398-8652. Thank you very much. And back to the show. Dr. Mark Circus, would you like to comment about this? That dentistry has a causal effect on well-being, on disease, and specifically on cardiology symptoms and issues. Well, that's absolutely, you know, basic science. The inflammation in many people begins, and including cancer, begins in the mouth, begins with the inflammation of the gums. In my case, I had massive gum loss as a late teenager because I had an uncle who used to brag about putting five mercury fillings in a tooth in one day when I was five years old. I mean, I had a mouthful of mercury. And so, you know, I didn't end up with cancer, but unending inflammation is just a story that's in probably the majority of people's, well, I would say the vast majority. Dr. Gordon just gave us a number. He says that using his te- much more reasonable test for magnesium than the regular doctors give, that over 99% are magnesium deficient. That's another way of saying 99% of people have inflammation because you can't be magnesium deficient and not have inflammation. One goes with the other. And if you're deficient in magnesium, you're going to probably have an excess in calcium because calcium is controlled by magnesium. Dr. Brownstein in Detroit measured 5,000 patients for iodine deficiencies, and he got 96.7%. So people who really know how to test and what to look for can see huge holes in people's health. My favorite deficiency to look at beside magnesium is bicarbonate deficiency. People are bicarbonate deficient, and the older they get, the more deficient they get. But do doctors think about replenishing bicarbonates or what it even means? Not in a world that's you know stuck on carbon dioxide as a poison, because when you really look at subjects like you know why baking soda works or why people are totally acidic, You know, we look at people breathing too fast, magnesium deficiencies, all these mineral deficiencies. Dr. Gordon was saying, get the lead out of people. These are basic things. Dr. Gordon talks about the transdermal magnesium. Of course, that's what put me on the medical map around the world, my book, Transdermal Magnesium Therapy. Dr. Nunnally, could you share um, a couple of patients, not their names, but that you have seen come in with certain conditions for which the kind of dentistry that you practice has helped them be totally removed from any disease conditions? Well, let me just give you one uh, that's real close to home, and that's a hygienist who's been practicing with me for 20 years. And uh, she took a blow to the front of her mouth with a baseball when she was about 25 and um, 
one tooth died, and I did the root canal on that tooth. That was when I was doing about 120 root canals a year. The next year, the tooth right next to it died from the same blow, so I did the root canal on it. And within a matter of a few weeks, this perfectly healthy 25-year-old woman began to have uh, rheumatoid-like symptoms and to the point of not being able to get out of bed uh, within six months. At this time, seen a, a rheumatologist, and she was full-blown uh, lupus slash rheumatoid. This was literally when I just first began to become aware of the root canal issue 13 years ago. And so we removed those two uh, root canal teeth on my hygienist, and within three weeks, 95% of her symptoms were gone, and she had an elevated what's called an ANA titer, which is a blood test for determining um, what type of of autoimmune disease you have, and then within just that matter of time, two, three weeks, her ANA titer went back to virtually normal. And here she is almost 20 years later, um, medication-free and doing very, very well. So that was, actually, I'm very thankful for that, that particular young woman because that was sort of at the beginning of the time where I was hearing about this um, root canal issue. And then I can't tell you the number of times, I mean, it would be countless, uh, the number of times where we've uh, simply removed someone's mercury fillings only to have see them six months later and they are back living a robust life and feel like they're energized. They no longer have mercury tagged on to their hemoglobin but now are able to carry oxygen as they're supposed to. And so that story just continues on and on and on. And uh, then, of course, uh, Kim, we could talk about um, osteonecrosis of the jawbone, cavitations, all of those things over the years we've just seen case after case where patients have responded incredibly. I want to go through a, a very difficult dilemma with all of you, and I want to say to you that you're experts in your field. You're the champions of your field. You're really at the crossroads. You're in the center. You're in the center point of where all of the new knowledge is, and some of it is ancient knowledge. The new knowledge has been around for a long time, and it gets newer and newer. But the public does not receive most of what you all do and are bringing forth as mainstream medical knowledge. It is not standard practice in your fields. And therefore, of critical mass of people discount this kind of knowledge. And the families of people who are suffering, who when they go to their doctors, like my friend in the United Kingdom, her family thought she was nuts not to listen to her doctors who want to put her on aspirin and statins and beta blockers, yet they have inconclusive evidence of what she has. People think that people who don't get root canals are nuts. When I went to my mainstream dentist in Los Angeles when I was there and I was losing my tooth and didn't know it, a team surrounded me, literally surrounded me and said, you've got to have a root canal. And I said, I will never have a root canal. I know too much about it now. They looked at me like I was insane. 
And to this day, they can't figure out why I didn't do it. I ended up putting that doctor on the phone with Dr. Stuart Nunnally. But that is the pressure, the gravitational pressure to conform to standard medicine, FDA-regulated, crafted, the sphere of what's acceptable to treat. It's a lot of pressure on families, not just for patients, but their families and having to deal with their families in things that don't work. What do you have to say about that, Dr. Stephen Hickey in Manchester? We need to get back to a position where people understand what science is all about. Science is not about big medicine and large-scale trials. It's about determining what is going on. And mostly in medicine, that's quite simple. And you can do it with small trials and, and small experiments. And the difficulty is that people put their belief in experts. And as um, Richard Feynman, the great American physicist, once said, science is a belief in the inadequacy of the experts. We need to get back to a position whereby people take responsibility for their own health. They make the decisions themselves rather than relying on a doctor or another medical profession to make their decisions for them. Most people take more trouble over buying a used car than they would over their, their health, even when it comes down to a decision of life or death. And that's the sad situation we're in. I don't know what the answer is, but it's not helped by the hype and the advertising budgets that the large-scale pharmaceutical companies have. They have so much financial strength that it's a brave physician that will um, go against them and probably a foolhardy physician. Um, we need to get back to a world which is based on real data, simple experiments, small-scale trials, and away from relying on experts. I want to also pose something to you, and then I want to open it up to the rest of the guests. Let's just take one substance. Let's take the asorbate. I go to buy asorbate. I represent millions of people that may want to take vitamin C that actually have read about it, researched it. I go to buy it. I consider myself an informed person. Guess what? 90% of the vitamin C is made in China. We know that, and this is not a blow to the Chinese, but we know that you don't, there is not very good quality control coming out of that country when it comes to food. We know that there is a high percentage now of vitamin C that's made from GMO material. A great percentage of the public is not aware of GMO food, seeds, animals. There are different views about what is acceptable supplementation. And I'd like to know where you're at, Dr. Hickey, and then I want to go around the group. I, I don't really like GMO food stuffs, etc. It's a t but it's a technology. It isn't, it isn't a single thing. And I've ne never seen a, a sensible application of GMO. 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be one at some point in the future. Going back to vitamin C and ascorbic acid, it shouldn't, in theory, make any difference where that comes from, providing it's been suitably purified. Because it's a simple molecule, you can crystallize it and you can recrystallize it. But the issue remains the lack of basic science in the population. So, for example, let me return to what was said before about blood pressure measurement. Yes. It's very common, um, but it doesn't make any sense at all. For example, it should be a reliable measurement, but it, it's not, and it's very difficult to see how it could possibly be. In any individual, it's highly variable. It varies with the time of day, their level of activity or, or the level of recent activity, their state of mind, their current situation, their current state of health, um, whether it's who it's being taken by, you get a white coat effect. So if you if you get it taken by a doctor or somebody in a in a position of authority, you may find that the blood pressure reading is much higher than if you took it yourself. Given all that, and given the individual variation that you might expect, it isn't a reliable measurement. It doesn't make sense to go to your family doctor and have your blood pressure measured. It seems to be just a way of making profit, because once you've established that you've got high blood pressure measurement in the doctor's office, you'll probably get treated for that, and that treatment would extend over years or even decades. So the problem is the lack of basic science running throughout the whole of medicine. And as I said, I don't know how that's going to change. It certainly isn't going to change within the profession, given the pressure of the drug companies. It may be that we'll get people finding out for themselves how science works and that medicine as it's currently being practiced has absolutely no relationship to the scientific method it's politics and business um, but that i think is the only way we're going to go forward with this dr gary gordon do you agree that if you're suggesting vitamin c to your patients that they should take gmo vitamin c Absolutely. I have to tell you, Linus Pauling was my good friend. Wait, wait, wait. I'm asking about GMO vitamin C. I couldn't take one gram of vitamin C. I developed a vitamin C that is stomach-friendly. Anybody can take 8, 12, 16 grams like Linus Pauling did. And I actually designed a product where I added, added things like MSM and ribosin. Everybody that I treat is on four gram minimum, one teaspoon twice a day, and it's definitely come and sourced from China, but we do add simple things like ribose and glycine. But is it genetically modified? It is. Uh, well, I'll put it this way. We're pretty fussy about our standards because we buy it by the ton. I sell an awful lot of vitamin C. Respectfully, I'm asking you a direct question. Is the vitamin C that you are suggesting to your patients genetically modified, yes or no? No. Thank you. Um, Dr. Thomas Levy, in terms of the vitamin C and your work with vitamin C, do you suggest genetically modified vitamin C or make products with it? No, I certainly don't suggest it, uh, although I have to agree with Dr. Hickey on the point that he made 
that if you have a proper purification process, the ascorbate molecule is the ascorbate molecule is the ascorbate molecule. You know, certainly there's a big difference between eating food grown from genetically modified organism seeds and taking a product in that's gone through a very highly refined process. I mean, everybody's got every right to be upset about GMO and what they're doing to our food supply, but I think they pass along a little bit of hysteria when they apply it to purified products. Now, if you have a disreputable company that has a very bad purification process, well, that's absolutely not good. But also, as a practical point of view, anything from GMO basically comes in as a toxin, a prooxidant. And when you're taking an antioxidant, you're pretty much neutralizing it on the spot. So if you're taking in uh, a score bait that's 99.2% uh, pure and there's 0.8% toxins, clinically those still are going to be largely irrelevant. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving a dispensation to GMO anything, and it follows that all the food that you eat should be as pure as possible. All the supplementation that you take should be pure as possible. But for goodness sakes, somebody should not, let's say, avoid taking vitamin C if the only vitamin C they have available to them, money-wise and everything else, is something that originated from a genetically modified corn. Well, I appreciate that answer. Dr. Stewart Nunnally, what is your reply to the question about taking substances that are genetically modified, even if they are antioxidants or are supposed to supposedly help the body? Well, again, the molecule is the molecule. And so if it's been refined, that the molecule, ascorbic acid is ascorbic acid, whether it's come from GMO corn or whether it's come from non-GMO tapioca or cassava melon, However, there are people, of course, in the world and not necessarily in Western medicine who would say just the essence or the energetics derived from whatever source it comes from is imparted to that molecule, and we should avoid the derivation of vitamin C from something that's been genetically modified. So you just have to know that about a large portion of the world doesn't believe in the Western medical standards and, and believe that there are homeopathic, for for example, reasons why we should not use a molecule that's been derived from something that's been genetically modified. I have to say in my own practice, I prefer to use a vitamin C when I can that's been compounded from an organic source. Got it. Um, Dr. Levy, what about liposomal vitamin C? There's a lot of confusion in the mass public about this. It's supposed to be an exciting delivery system to bring um, a more potent vitamin C into the bloodstream. I know I've taken it before I went in for surgery with Dr. Nunley, but most of us are unfamiliar with it. Can you just give us like a two-minute sketch on what it is and why, it's, why you think it's relevant? Well, liposomal encapsulation is an exciting technology, in my opinion. It came along initially in 1965. But in a nutshell, you have a little ball of lipid 
that inside contains a water-soluble substance. So in the case of vitamin C, it's surrounded by a membrane that is actually indistinguishable from the membrane of a cell in the body. Now, what happens very interestingly is when you take a liposome, a properly liposome encapsulated product orally, it does not go into the capillaries and through the portal system and pass through the liver. Instead, because it's a small ball of fat, it goes into the lymphatic equivalent of capillaries called the ileals and goes straight into the lymphatic circulation. And there you have a very large concentration of immune cells and you get very large levels of vitamin C going directly into monocytes, macrophages, white blood cells, lymphocytes, etc. And what doesn't get taken up then goes through the lymphatics into the subclavian vein and dumps into the systemic circulation. The upshot of all this is that taking something like a liposome encapsulated preparation of vitamin C, even though you took it orally, it gets you a better intracellular delivery than if you took the same amount intravenously. Also, you don't have energy consumption when the liposome puts its content inside the cell, whereas when you take vitamin C intravenously, you either have an active transport system taking up the reduced form or it passively takes up dehydroscorbic acid, which then needs to be reduced inside the cell. So you're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So bottom line is inflammation calls in vitamin C because you have a vitamin C depletion wherever you have inflammation. And what comes in when you first have inflammation or infection or anything like that, that's the white blood cells. And when you're dosing liposome-encapsulated vitamin C, you will for, the, uh, for lack of a better expression, supercharge your white blood cells with the thing that makes them most powerful, and that's high intracellular concentrations of vitamin C. Um, I want to open up the floor a little bit because there's so much confusion for the public, for consumers, to take liposomal, to take the ascorbic, fruit and vegetables, what to do. I want to go back to Dr. Hickey, and then I want to get back to you, Dr. Gordon. Dr. Hickey, you come from a different place about Dr. Levy's view and his ex- his expertise and experience in this particular area. Is that true or is that incorrect? Well, if I can say to, to begin that people do need a lot more vitamin C than is promoted by the RDA, etc., perhaps several grams a day. If a normal person takes several grams a day you know, in divided doses of ascorbic acid, then they will absorb more or less what they need if they're in reasonably good health. If they get sick, then their level of absorption goes up and they take in a great deal more. Effectively, their absorption varies with their state of health. But there's a limit to the amount that they absorb when they're well or when they're ill. And until you reach that limit, I don't really think taking liposomal vitamin C helps because if you've got a cold or or the flu and you take a gram of ordinary standard ascorbic acid, you're going to absorb basically the whole of that gram because you're ill. Uh, That's the um, bowel tolerance effect. And it's only when you get nearer to the bowel tolerance that taking uh, some liposomal vitamin C will increase your absorption. So I take issue with uh, liposomal vitamin C for somebody in reasonably good health, and I take issue with it if the person 
is acutely ill, you know, when, but when I say acutely ill, I mean ill over a short period. For example, they've got a cold. Um, taking liposome or vitamin C instead of standard ascorbic acid. However, if you've got a chronic illness, for example, I don't know, TB or cancer, and you're, you're wanting to maintain your blood levels and your tissue levels at the highest possible concentration, then you should start with ascorbic acid when you're near to bowel tolerance then you should add on liposomal vitamin C after that. Now, the whole argument that I've just made depends on the relative cost of ascorbic acid and liposomal vitamin C. Ascorbic acid is much, much cheaper. So, for example, uh, you might get, in U.S. terms, you might be able to get a gram of vitamin C for five cents or something, whereas a gram of liposomal might cost you a dollar. And it's that differential that makes profit for the companies selling liposomal vitamin C, but for the consumer, the most consumers, most of the time, um, can get by on standard ascorbic acid. Okay, Dr. Levy, I know you want to respond to this, and then Dr. Gordon, we're going to hear from you. Go ahead, Dr. Levy. Well, I would just say that all of what Dr. Hickey says, uh, I, I'm sure that's what he believes to be the truth. But what I report not only comes from the journals of liposome science, it also comes from clinical experience. Dr. Hickey's a PhD. I'm a medical doctor. Not, one is not better than the other, but a medical doctor treats a lot of patients on a regular basis or has arm length treatment as I do with a large number of docs around the world. And I can just tell you whether we want to believe what I just said about liposomes or not, acute oral liposome vitamin C ingestion causes a tremendous clinical response that you just don't see with an equivalent amount of regular vitamin C oral or intravenous. The more forms of vitamin C you take, the better. Liposome vitamin C, ascorbic acid, Intravenous vitamin C, all of these things as monotherapies have done great things. So to talk up one is not to disparage the other. In fact, I have something called the multi-C protocol that when someone's not responding well, it's good to give them the liposome, sodium ascorbate to bowel tolerance, a fat-soluble form of vitamin C called ascorbyl palmitate, and as much intravenous vitamin C as you can get as frequently as the patient could tolerate it financially uh, and convenience-wise. And when you hit somebody with all four prongs of the multi-C protocol, you often get things that you can't get with any one form. Dr. Gordon, I'd like you to respond to this conversation. You are doing a fantastic job. I have not yet brought out my own liposomal. I feel that what we're talking about here is an important piece of information, and I like the very accurate way that I think Dr. Levy just explained his program. Uh, I have really focused in my lifetime on how much vitamin C I urinate, and I have everybody actually buy a Vita check C strips so they can measure how much C is in their urine, and that way I've gotten rid of a lot of confusion in the marketplace because in my 
simplistic thinking, if EDTA is uh, able to take out lead, so does high doses of vitamin C. So if you are urinating out significant doses of vitamin C, you might, at age 80, feel as fantastic as I do. I've never been this healthy, but I do everything. But the thing is that if they measure how much C, I find that only with the well-tolerated form I was lucky enough to bring together with ribose and MSM can I get average patient to always be excreting large quantities of C in their urine, so they're always detoxing. But I really like the careful distinction that Dr. Levy brought to the discussion. I'm the guy that wants to let out. I want everybody on the cheap sodium ascorbate. Dr. Hickey made it very clear by bringing in the cost factor. I think you're doing a great job by having all of this information. I hope this tape goes to a lot of people. I will be bringing out a liposomal. I like the way... Uh, Dr. Levy explained that if you're more concerned about the immune system, then that's a really good time to be using some. And I like the way that everybody, in my estimation, needs to be. Because Linus Pauling, when I was my friend and we were big buddies, he was on 16 to 18 grams a day, and I could only take one gram. And I wanted to be like him when I grew up. So it took me 10 years to make the ribose vitamin C that I call bioenergy C or vitality C that has got a lot of people able without stomach upset, to easily take one teaspoon three to four times a day, each teaspoon being four grams, but it's not just C. It's the additional things, MSM, trimethylglycine, ribose, etc. And so I think this is a terribly useful exercise that you're doing to get the, all this information in the hands of the public. And I think the way Dr. Levy just said, if you're trying to do everything with a monotherapy, I, having been born sick, totally collapsing at age 28, and I take everything. I'm on my iodine, I'm on my magnesium, I'm on my thyroid. Nobody wants to read everything I take. You sound like Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil takes like 200 supplements. <laughs> he doesn't want to die. <laughs> That's the easiest way to look at it. I, I have now found a homeopathic approach. Everybody knows homeopathy. I'm on the board. I'm the president of the Arizona Homeopathic Association. What we find in homeopathy is you get hits and misses. Well, we have now found a convenient way that I can take everyone and make a personalized homeopathic for them based on doing electronic testing of their body. And I'm, I'm getting results that I am just so excited about that I feel all of us need to recognize that homeopathy is an inexpensive way of making all the other products that Gary Gordon and Ray Kosa will take that nobody can afford unless you've been as sick as I, then you don't care what it costs. And I drive a very old car because to me, my life is, my health is my first thing. Dr. Gordon, in the United Kingdom, homeopathy is very well known, but some people actually say there's been no evidence, no scientific data to support homeopathy. Now, Dr. Levy, what do you, what's your take on it? Open it up. You know, I just have to say I really have no experience with homeopathy, and as you just mentioned, although there's a lot of things out there with double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, I'd really just like to see one such study with homeopathy because there's a lot of things out there that could help a lot of people, and when you just measure mild symptoms, pain, headache, like I said, I, I just need more information. I, I've not been exposed yet to enough information on homeopathy that I can embrace it as a scientifically-based therapy, but that's not to say that it's not something that, uh, that I couldn't be enlightened upon. I just have not had... Uh, any experience with it yet, and 
I've looked in the literature and I've not seen anything along these lines. And I do say double-blind placebo-controlled because this is the classical situation where that would be, to me, the most definitive. You know, some people say, well, I use homeopathy on my pet and it works. How would my pet know whether it's a legitimate therapy or not? And that's where the double-blind comes in because a pet owner gives the pet affection and touching and this out of the other. All of those things would be positive, but if you just have a code, make it double-blind, make it placebo-controlled and clearly show reduction in whatever, that to me would be a very impressive study. Dr. Gordon, do you think it's possible to do that? And do you think you could cross-pollinate your information together since Dr. Levy's unfamiliar with it? Could you get Dr. Levy uh, familiar with it? Homeopathic Association had a board meeting last night because we're being asked by the FDA to come forth and clarify where homeopathy is, and we've made it quite clear by Dr. Michael Lowe's talk last night. He's a University of Minnesota trained MD, board-certified internist, board-certified addiction medicine, and he really tried to teach us that where Dr. Levy is functioning, you do like to have the so-called scientific method, and we love Jeff Bland, and he's really brought us what we call evidence-based functional medicine. But that means you've never done any reading in principles-based medicine. And principle-based medicine has an entirely different set of laws regarding healing. And when we recognize today that energy medicine is absolutely sweeping the world, we have money-back guarantee in this country that if you're scheduled for your knee to be replaced, all you do is they give you a $500 LED, you use it to your knee for three months. If you don't think it helps, they give you 500 bucks back. And we have top Hall of Fame athletes canceling new replacements. So we're into energy, and energy does not fit the double-blind study. And I do think we want to have people have the choice. And because FDA looks like they might be taking away the homeopathy of people personally treating themselves, they're not upset about doctors using it because we have our licenses and our and like Dr. Levy says, we have our clinical experience, but we need to, we need to recognize that because we've been challenged in one day alone, we had 150 testimonials sent to Dr. Bruce Shelton, who's the president of our board of homeopathic medicine, with stories that will bring tears to your eyes, with remedies that can cost people ten or fifteen dollars, where there's no possibility of doing harm. Uh, all I can say is I have been lucky enough as an expert at German medicine to find a way to analyze my body energetically and taking that information make my homeopathic 100% home run on every time on every patient whether the problem is they're urinating every hour or they have back pain they can't bend over or they have no ability to go up a flight of steps so I'm pretty excited about the principles based medicine using personalized homeopathy it will change everybody's understanding and it starts with that simple idea we've been treating hypertension in this country with a money-back basis that we put the v-light v-i-e-l-i-g-h-d in your nose and if it doesn't lower your blood pressure we give you your money back so we kind of like this energy medicine and it is really going to be exciting thank you stand by for just a moment thank you all for being here i just want to wrap up this segment of its rain making time and, and I want to share with all of you that some years ago I had a client who was a Pentagon scientist. And 
She was a very religious person, and she used to do prayers over people. And when she did prayers over people, they would have major healings. And she got so excited about it that she wanted to start tracking everything. She wanted to raise millions of dollars to show that prayer impacts the body temple. And I had a dear friend of mine who had been in a terrible car accident who had a torn rotator cuff in two places and was in such pain and practically her arm was immobilized. And this woman was my client and I said, let's go. She's an expert at this. You've got nothing to lose. I'll hold the faith. Let's see if it works. What the heck? And my friend who was not born again, was not a religious person, was just receptive I had the faith. She was receptive. And I'll tell you, we walked in that place. The prayer was done. And she had full mobilization of her of her arm and has never had a problem since. And that was back in 2008. So not only is energy medicine exciting, the power of prayer is exciting. What we're calling in is exciting. What you're all about is exciting. And what you're offering to the world and the public is phenomenal. I love you. I appreciate you. And I'm so honored that you're here. I want to ask all of you, if you would help me get this show out, get the show on the road. I want the world to hear this. You're the leaders of your field. I'm so proud and honored to know you. And I want to thank you for being here, all of you, Dr. Stuart Nunley, Dr. Mark Circus, Dr. Thomas Levy, Dr. Gary Gordon, and Dr. Stephen Hickey. Thank you all for being here, and I'd like to thank Bruce Barker, who's been producing its Rainmaking Time specials for 10 years, who got me started in radio. I want to thank uh, Jay Pritchard here in the United Kingdom, Andrew Abung, my creative minister, my minister in residence, who has been with its Rainmaking Time for six years, who shows up where very few people show up in life. Thank you so much, Andy. And thank all of you. It's rainmaking time. Can you all say it's rainmaking time? It's rainmaking time. It's rainmaking time. One more time. It's rainmaking rain time. time. Thank you. God bless you.